Let's pray this morning. God, we believe that you have given us all that we require, all the grace and mercy that we require in order to live according to your word, in order to keep the promise at the heart of this book, to keep, to persevere, to continue on, even in the midst of great difficulty. You've given us all the grace that we need, that we require. So I pray, God, that this morning you'd make that grace known to us. You'd preach it into our into our hearts. You'd, you'd enable us, Lord, you'd put it on our lips and on our tongues that we might speak that grace to one another encouragingly. We might speak it to others. Lord God, reveal it to us on the pages of, of Scripture. Spirit of God, would you be active this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so here we are at, at the end of Revelation, right? Like, this is the first time I've ever preached uh, uh, through a book, and at the end of that book, um, on the left-hand side of my Bible is the text. On the right-hand side of my Bible are the weights and measures, right? Um, monetary units, right? So, like, we're, that's the end of the Bible, right? Okay? Um, or at least the way the Bible's been organized for the vast majority of church history. And I really do think Revelation stands a high chance of being the last written words in Scripture. Um, I think John is likely writing this in the 90s AD under the rule of Domitian. Later than every other New Testament writing, the last penned words of Christ himself to the church. And, and so here at the end, we find ourselves at the end of Revelation, right? End of Revelation. But at the end, we see a, a circle back to the beginning. A circling back. So just like we see in a lot of works of literature, Revelation be, began with a, a prologue. Do you remember? Chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Kind of a quiet prologue prior to any of the apocalyptic visions that we've seen throughout see this gentle quiet prologue and now it ends with an epilogue 22 6 through 21 and a lot of the themes in the epilogue are actually circling back and repeating the themes that we read about in the prologue right like we get to the end and it's like okay i want to re john's like i want to restate everything that i began the book with in light of all that we've talked about, in light of all of these visions that we've seen, in light of all that we've been assured of throughout the book, let me now restate what I said at the beginning. Um, and, and that mirrors what we find in a lot of literature throughout the ages. Let me give you an example. Maybe some of you are familiar with what's known as the hero's journey. This is a framework for storytelling, writing stories, um, especially myths, legends in which there are a number of stages that a protagonist or a hero of the story must go through in order to become victorious, right? So there's a lot of different versions of the hero's journey out there. Maybe some of you are familiar with various versions. But I'd say the most common, developed by a literary critic by the name of Joseph Campbell, I think it has about 12 stages, if I'm correct. And Campbell, he's the guy who spends a lot of time developing this framework. He actually says... You know, stories like this explains ancient myths, and he applies it to the person of Jesus. He says, okay, as I look at this hero's journey, I can take this narrative of fiction and say, oh, this explains perfectly the life of Christ, especially, he, you should read what he says about Revelation, especially in Revelation, and we'll get to that in a minute. But um, I don't have time to run through each of the stages of the hero's journey, but, but here it is in a nutshell. So first, I'll give you about ten. First, first there's the ordinary world. It's the first stage of the hero's journey. That's a prologue of sorts. 
where things are ordinary, right? There isn't any adventure yet. Um, we meet the hero, or we're told about the hero, but things are pretty normal. So, if, you know, for a running example, we could use the, the, the Hobbit. Where at the beginning of The Hobbit, what do you have? Bilbo sitting on his porch, smoking a pipe some evening in the Shire, just like every other evening. It's the ordinary world. And then from that, you have the call to adventure, where then a, a challenge or a quest is proposed. A bunch of dwarves show up on Bilbo's doorstep, and they all bundle into the door, and they call him to this adventure in the Lonely Mountain. Number three, you have the refusal of the call, where the hero initially declines, so classic, right? He's like, no, I don't want to do this. Um, Bilbo tells them no. He sleeps in the next morning. He's glad when they're gone. Then you meet the mentor, number four, where a guide persuades and helps the hero, which of course in this case would be Gandalf, who gives him a little nudge out the door. Next is crossing the threshold. This is the point of no return in the story, in which Bilbo's gone too far to turn back. There's no turning back at this point. Then you have tests, allies, enemies, adventure on the way to the Lonely Mountain. Then you have the approach to the innermost cave. In this case, in, in, in the story of The Hobbit, it's literal, right? So the approach to the innermost cave where there's some conflict that the hero must face, approaching the treasure where the dragon is. Then you have the ordeal, the sacrifice, the death, at which point the hero is, in some sense, defeated. Right? He's challenged, he's defeated. Then you have the resurrection. Rising up, the hero rises up with some new knowledge that makes him victorious and also helps him see that, you know, he's had the power within him the whole time. This whole time he finally sees, he finally realizes it. And then finally, a return to the ordinary world. So he starts with the ordinary world, but now he returns, but this time he returns with the treasure or with the elixir or with the thing that saves mankind. But the hero returns and now he's, he, he comes back possessing that which can save Everyone. So here we have a structure from which a lot of literature, a lot of ancient literature, a lot of ancient story and myth tends to adopt from that framework. And when we read Revelation, we see one big similarity here, for sure, but one big difference, too, that's important for us to talk about. Uh, Because the similarity is that the telling of the story of Revelation begins and ends in the same place, right? Like, the, the epilogue takes us back to the prologue, only with full knowledge now of certain victory. We see that in Revelation. John now turns us to the very words, the very themes that started the journey to begin with. This is kind of the ordinary world. Um, you know, Sinclair Ferguson talks about chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and chapter 22, 6 through 21. And he says, man, if you look at these two side by side, it's so different from the rest of the book. It's this quiet, ordinary, you know, the rest of the book is very full of action and, and, and metaphor. And here you have this, these quiet statements on both ends in which the statements are repeated. So there's kind of this return to the ordinary world where there is no apocalyptic vision any longer, but now we have assurance that Christ um, has done these things, of what Christ has done, what he will do. We get to examine the themes from chapter 1, which is the point of going back to the ordinary world. We get to examine the themes from chapter 1, only now we, we get to examine those themes in light of the whole book. Chapters 1 through 22. So that's the big similarity. The end of Revelation brings us back to the beginning again with greater knowledge, greater hope, greater assurance. But the big difference, the one that makes Joseph Campbell absolutely wrong in applying this framework to Christ, 
is that Christ is no mythical hero who needed to go on a journey of self-discovery to learn that the power was just within him all along and he didn't know it. But rather, it's actually the opposite. It's quite the opposite in every gospel account, in every word that's written about him in history. It's quite the opposite. Um, He's the true hero who came into this world precisely because he knew this is who he was. This is who he is. And it's what he, he, he decreed to do. He didn't refuse the call. He willingly embraced it on our behalf. And you know, here's one of the ways you know that what we're reading in the gospel actually isn't myth. It's not legend. He didn't inadvertently die, only to then somehow rise, like we see in the mythical stories. But rather, as our hero, he was born in order to die. We talk about this a lot at GLC, but it's important. His, his death was the purpose of his coming. And you know, um, C.S. Lewis uh, talks about this a lot. He says, look, there's no ancient myth, there's no ancient legend that reads that way anywhere in history, that reads the way that the gospel accounts read. So what that means, here's what it means. The assurance that we receive here this morning is the greatest assurance possible. Because not only do we return to the original world with the, with the knowledge of what the hero has done that we could never do at the end of Revelation. But it also just happens to be true. It's all true. And the reason I bring all of it up this morning is that when we read this closing section in Revelation, what we actually see, what John actually does, is he gives us a series of repeated reminders. Back to what was said in the beginning of the book, in the knowledge of now what Christ has done, in order to encourage us, and actually in order to give us what we need as believers to apply the central theme of the book as we read it, as we hear it, right? So all that we need. That's essentially going to be how we outline the text this morning. We want to focus on three statements that John makes to encourage us in this way, if you're you're taking notes. Three statements, but we're going to have to outline this a little bit differently than we normally do, and you're going to see what I'm talking about, because John's epilogue isn't really, it's like his prologue. It's not really neatly organized. It's not like first John argues this, and then second he builds on that argument by saying this, and then third he, he finishes off his argument this way. Instead, he, he has like a series of observations that come back to one another. He's on this theme here, and then he's on this theme again, and then he's on it again later on. It's all in different voices, right? Um, it's a number of observations. Grant Osborne calls it a series of utterances. They include, they include words about the angel, first person sayings from John himself, first person sayings from Jesus. So a number of observations that we see in the text that point us back to the beginning and that also highlight the themes that have been featured throughout the book. And and so what we're going to see is three statements. We're going to condense those down to three statements from John. And each of these statements, it shouldn't surprise us if we've been paying attention in Revelation so far, but each of these statements will serve as a contrast in the text. Right? They repeat what John says. They contrast it now with the opposite. All right. Now that we've been through the book, John doesn't just focus on the statement. He also focuses on the counter to that statement. So let me give you all three. All right. Number one, John says, God's revelation is reliable, but human intuition is not. God's revelation is reliable. Human intuition is not. Jesus is coming soon, but so is judgment. He says Jesus is coming soon, but so is judgment. And then third, believers are blessed. Unbelievers are warned and invited. 
Believers are blessed. Unbelievers are warned and invited. We'll come back to each one of those. I know I went fast. Okay, here's the, the, the first statement. Okay, God's revelation is reliable, but human intuition is not. So, throughout Revelation, we've seen these black and white contrasts. Again, like, that's, that's why we have apocalyptic literature. This is, in the first century, what apocalyptic literature was attempting to do, in part. It approaches things in a very black and white kind of way. You're either in or you're out. You either follow God or Satan. There's no middle ground. And so we see the first of three more of these contrasts in which God's revelation brought up in chapter 1 is explicitly contrasted throughout the book, but right here at the close with human intuition. So just look at, it's going to be helpful, I think, if you page back to Revelation chapter 1, you stick your thumb there for the first couple of points that we're going to be in. So Revelation chapter 1, first look at 1-1, and then we're going to jump back to 22, 6, and 7, okay? So Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, if you remember, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Okay, uh, now 22, 6, and 7. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent me this angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So, if you remember from our first week in Revelation together, um, like 30 weeks ago, all right, in our very first week together, this phrase... Revelation of Jesus Christ can be, can be interpreted a couple of different ways. All right? It can either mean the revelation whose content is Jesus. In other words, this is the revelation about him. It's the revelation of him in the sense that it tells us more about him. It can mean that. Or it can mean a revelation given by Jesus from him to us. And we know from the context, both in chapter 1 and in 22, that it's for sure talking about the second thing. But I argued, and you can go back and listen, if you want more info, but I argue that it actually refers to both. This is a revelation from God, from Jesus, about Jesus. In every sense, this is a revelation of Jesus. It's from him to us. It's about him. It concerns him, who he is and what he's done. And as you examine more of what John writes in chapter 1, you actually see, you know, it's not, John makes it really clear in the beginning, and he makes it really clear as he closes, this is not John's word to us. It's Jesus' word. He's, he's like, I don't want you to read this under the impression that this is somehow my opinion about how the end will come. He wants us to be sure to understand that this is directly from Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised when here in verses 6 through 8 it's described as trustworthy and true. Like, John, that's what his argument is. He's saying, there's a reason this is trustworthy, and it's because it's not from me. All right? Um, It's not from me. It's reliable because of its source. And that was his argument in chapter 1 as well. And, you know, it's it's important. This is why preaching is central in the life of the church. It is. This is why even when you do a cursory survey of church history, like a brief survey, you notice that whenever the church is languishing, whenever the church is fading, whenever the church 
is, is cascading into unfaithfulness. It actually turns out that the preaching during that time was languishing, was fading, was cascading into unfaithfulness. And whenever the church was thriving, when we see pockets of history where revival is truly breaking out in certain sectors of the church, preaching was thriving. Preaching was faithful during that time. And for whatever reason, and there are many I fear oftentimes we want to distance ourselves from the proclaimed word and make church more accessible and have seasons where the preached word is replaced with the speaker's opinions. But over time, it always dies out. It does. Whether it's in the form of a local church or whether it's in an entire movement, it always dies out because it's like, why on earth would you ever get out of bed on a Sunday morning? Historically, sometimes the only day of the week that people have off. Would you ever get out of bed early on a Sunday morning just to come hear some dude's opinion on stuff? Right? You can hit hit up YouTube for that. You don't have to come on Sunday morning to hear somebody's opinion. And this is important because it's like, I know that during COVID there's been a shuffle. Like people are looking for churches. There's a, it's an interesting season in which unchurched people people who've had to move for a variety of reasons, people who are looking for churches for a variety of reasons, are finding themselves in different places. And to the degree that they find themselves here for a season, let me just say, there are a lot of gospel-proclaiming churches out there, but as you search for a church, this has to be the, the cent- central conviction, right? Like, we gather because this revelation has authority, right? Not because Jeremy Dagg has authority. This revelation has authority. Like, preaching is central in the life of the church, and that has, that, that's not because of the preacher, it's because of the Word. It's not because the preacher is so good. It's because the Word is so good. It's because the Spirit of God works through the Word of God. It's because the Word has authority. And it has authority because it's not mine, because it's not John's, but because it's from Jesus himself. But John goes further than that, because we're going to return to that theme. John goes further than that. Not only does he tell us that those who um, keep the words of this prophecy, remember this, is, this book is prophecy in a couple of different ways. It testifies to the truthfulness of the gospel. It points us forward to the reality of his second coming. So it is prophetic. John says, as he did in chapter one, those who keep this prophecy are blessed precisely because the prophecy is reliable. But he goes further than that. We're going to come back to that theme. He goes further than that. He says human intuition is unreliable. John now shifts to a contrast, like he always does. It's interesting because you have an almost immediate contrast right away in the text between that which John finds trustworthy and that which he finds untrustworthy. The inclination, not, not somebody else's heart even, but of his own, of the human heart. And, and you know, it's, he's not saying, I don't trust that dude over there. He's like, his example is himself, right? So look at verses 8 and 9. I, John, Okay, right? I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw them, so do you see how he's, dis- he's making a distinction between himself and the revelation? He's like, look, I'm, I, I just heard and saw the message. My role is to convey to you what it was. Not to change it, not to process it for a while and reflect, what could it be that would make it better? Right? I heard and saw them, I'm reporting them. Okay, so when I heard and saw them, what did he do? I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, 
and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So John's immediate inclination, you know, being, this is the second time this has happened in Revelation, being so overwhelmed, right, with the words that are being spoken to him, being so overwhelmed by the visions that he's receiving, by the words that is being told by this angel, his first inclination is to fall down on the feet of, feet of that angel uh, who showed them to John and, the, and who said these things to John. And, and the angel says, no, 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 don't do that. You must, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. I'm creation, right along with you. I'm not creator. Don't make that mistake. I'm creation, right along with you. I'm under the authority of the one who revealed this to you. Same as you, I have no authority to take this message and twist it and make it my own because I'm not the one. I'm not God. I'm not the one who gives authority. Uh, So worship him. Worship God. It's a powerful moment. It's a powerful moment because John's heart, his emotions... His emotions in this moment, as he experiences these powerful words and visions, they actually mislead him. Like we, here's what we should do at GLC. As your pastor, I really long for us to continue to grow in our emotion and worship, for sure. We should. We should, as a church, long for emotion in our worship. Our hearts should be active in worship. And I recognize we show emotion differently. I'm not saying we have to be emotive in an outward sense. I'm saying, I long for us to be deeply emotional in our worship. But that deep emotion needs to be based on the truth of God's revelation to us, not the other way around. Like, here's what I, here's what John is saying, I think. If we follow our hearts into worship, most of the time it's going to be false worship. You know? If we follow our hearts into worship, it will often be false worship. But if we follow God's revelation, you know, when we hear the truth of the gospel proclaimed, that fuels our heart into right worship because we see the truth. And that causes us to rejoice. It gives us new desires because it gives us new joy. You know? John elsewhere records Jesus saying this to the woman at the well. This is the same John recording Jesus' words. The hour is coming and is now here when true, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Look, it's absolutely vital. It's vital that we worship with our hearts and our heads. It's absolutely vital to have our hearts engaged in worship, yes, but to not follow that heart wherever it leads us. Unrestrained, right? Just follow our hearts. John Piper writes this. He says, Worship must be vital and real in the heart, And worship must rest on a true perception of God. It's interesting because when you look at what's happening with John, I don't doubt that his emotions are real. You know, think about the visions that he's just seen. Think about the words that he was just told. Of course the guy's going to have emotion, and it's going to be real. So he has the first part, but his worship doesn't rest on a true perception of God. His attempted worship doesn't rest on a true perception of God. So Piper continues. He says there must be spirit And there must be truth. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy and a church church full or half full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces an empty frenzy, cultivates shallow people who refuse the discipline of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. 
Strong affections, listen to this, strong affections for God rooted in truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. Strong affections. That's what we long for at Gospel Life together as a community in worship, to have strong affections for God rooted in truth. The bone and marrow of biblical worship. Not only is this the case, but here we here in um, Revelation, but here we have another example demonstrating how easily our hearts are misled. Right? Just another example in Scripture here when we look at verses 6 through 9. How easily our hearts are misled. It's easy to put trust in human intuition over God's revelation. You know, it's easy to get caught up in what, your, maybe your emotions. It's easy to get caught up in surrounding, what surrounding culture is saying and allow that to bend our ear. And pretty soon we say, you know, that makes sense. And then we start to read God's revelation and we say, man, that seems outdated. That seems, maybe that seems wrong. And pretty soon we're distrusting revelation from an infinite God on the basis of an, the inclination of finite human hearts and minds. Like, you and I, we have no basis of authority from within ourselves. We don't. We have no basis of authority within ourselves, but it's so easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that we do. We'll have more to say on this before the sermon's out. So, okay, first we see God's revelation is reliable. Human intuition is not. Second, it leads us to our second statement, though. Jesus is coming soon, but so is judgment. Jesus is coming soon, but so is judgment. Look with me back at chapter 1, verse 1, same verse again, and then back to a series of verses in chapter 22. So chapter 1, verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Now chapter 22, verse 6, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent this angel, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, verse 7, I am coming soon. Verse 10, and he said to me, do not seal up the words of this, the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Verse 12, behold, I am coming soon. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. So, okay, we can say that Revelation, if it's not clear about much, it's clear about this. I mean, if there are a lot of things in Revelation that we look at and we scratch our heads about and we're like, I'm not sure about that. We're not sure how to navigate this interpretively. I think it's clear about a lot. But if we look at it and we're like, oh, there's a lot of things here that I struggle with. Here's one thing that it says. It's very clear. Jesus is coming soon. Now, <laughs> what that means as we look across the scope of Scripture isn't that it necessarily happens in our lifetime right? It isn't that it happens in our lifetime or the lifetime of a future generation, though I think part of what John means is certainly to address first century Christians about things that are happening in their lifetime, addressing first century Christians about first century events. But the concept is broader than that. So, so this is what happens. Some people read this and they, here's how they, um, here's the conclusion they arrive at. They say, all right, John and Jesus, they were products of their time. So, in their time, they said repeatedly, the, the apostles seemed to indicate repeatedly that Jesus was coming soon. 
that in the end he would return to them again soon. But obviously, you know, that didn't happen. We're, we're 2,000 years out. They must have had what's known in theological circles as an overrealized es- eschatology that, you know, they, they didn't see that it's going to be longer than that. So they were just, they were wrong in the first century about when the end would come, when the eschaton would arrive because of how long it's been. So how, how do we deal with that? Is, that? is that the case? No. Well, some, some say that the wording almost exclusively is referring to A.D. 70, the destruction of the temple, destruction of Jerusalem. But I don't think, I mean, I agree with Schreiner, right? I think this view hardly works because Revelation doesn't focus on Israel and Jerusalem, first of all. You do not see a strong focus there in terms of the imagery throughout the book outside of the new Jerusalem in the end. And I think it can really strain the meaning of a text to, to think that Jesus repeatedly saying, behold, I'm coming soon, means that there's going to be war in Jerusalem. Right. Um, so I think the better approach is to say that biblical prophecy is filled with exactly this kind of tension. All over the place. Like, if you were reading Isaiah and Jeremiah, you'd find similar language related to the new creation. Because with Isaiah and Jeremiah, there's every indication as you read through them that after the people of God return out of exile and back into the land, new creation happens. Or pretty soon after, it's, new creation is right on the heels of it. But, but new creation didn't happen immediately after the return of God's people. And yet, first century Jews, during Jesus' day, didn't think Isaiah and Jeremiah were wrong. Nor did they think that new creation, the way that Isaiah and Jeremiah described it, had already been fulfilled. They still had a future anticipation of new creation. They continued to wait with expectation, knowing that, as Peter would say, the apostle Peter would say, one day with the Lord is like a thousand years. Knowing also that God delays his coming out of mercy and patience in the hopes that, that, that in the, with the desire that people would repent. In a very real sense, as John wrote in his second epistle, it already is the last hour. And it has been the last hour since Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. The last hour has arrived through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And so since that moment, in this last hour, we as Christians wait with hopeful anticipation. I think our EFCA statement of faith handles the soon language really well. I've read it a lot. I'm going to read it again. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ, known at a time only to God, demands constant expectancy. That's the idea. And as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission, we're currently wrapping up a series teaching through the EFCA Statement of Faith, and we'll be teaching uh, Article 9, that article that I just read, next Sunday night, so come back for that. But we're in the last hour. Jesus is coming again. His coming will be at a time known only to God, but it demands of us constant expectancy. It motivates us to live in line with the gospel. It motivates us to to be sacrificial in our giving, as Justin talked about last week. Because think about the implication of think about the implications of Jesus' return. Think about the implications of this life versus eternity, right? It motivates us to to godly living, sacrificial service, sacrifice in our giving, but also to be fervent in our evangelism. Because, man, if Jesus is returning again, we'd better be talking to our friends and neighbors and coworkers who don't know him, telling them of this gospel. And we'll have more to say on that, too. So um, at least one of the reasons, one of the reasons that 
His coming has been delayed, is the second half of the statement, though. Okay, so Jesus is coming soon, but so is judgment. So is judgment. Look at verses 10 through 13. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil. Okay, it's weird. Uh, right? Strange statement. And the filthy still be filthy. Hmm. And the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, beginning and the end. Interestingly enough, every time in Revelation, every time here at the, the close of Revelation, that Jesus makes a statement about judgment, about the judgment of mankind, in the very next verse, he declares, this is who I am. This is based on my authority, and we'll see that again. So in verse 10, what happens? John is told, don't seal up the words of this prophecy. So in the Old Testament, Daniel, the prophet Daniel, was instructed to seal up the words of the prophecy for a time because it's not time yet. But John's told not to, and the reason is what we just said. The end is at hand. The time is, is, is uh, near, so don't seal it up. Proclaim it. Proclaim the reality of the gospel. Proclaim what Jesus did. Proclaim that he's coming. And that we have constant expectancy that he could come again. Don't, don't bind it up, but proclaim it. But then John continues in a way that might surprise us. So let the evildoer still do evil. The filthy can still be filthy. What on earth is he talking about? Is he saying that evildoers should just not bother changing at this point because old habits die hard, man, and and it's not going to happen for you. No, because throughout Revelation, especially in his commentary to like the, in his, in his words to the churches, the seven churches, it's like, repentance is important. If you don't repent, you're in a lot of trouble. And God's being patient so that you will, you know, to give you time to repent. So repent. It's not that. My read on verse 11 is that John wants to shock people into repentance. The same way that the Old Testament prophets did. The same way that Amos did in the Old Testament when he says, Come to Bethel and transgress. The idea is, yeah, okay, you could carry on as though none of this matters. You totally could. You could live your life right now as though none of this matters. Right? But there's going to be judgment. There, there will be. You know? The reason we know isn't because of John, John has the opinion that it will, or that any of the apostles have the opinion that there will be judgment, or that Jeremy, it's, it's, Jeremy's of the opinion that there will be judgment. It's because the revelation comes directly from Jesus, right? So we know that there will be. So you can continue on, but, but there's going to be judgment. It's not, you know, um, here we have, that, that's, that's exactly why he follows this sentence by saying, behold, I am coming soon, bringing recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Right? It's not dissimilar to what I do with my oldest kids sometimes when they argue with me about something that I know right, they're going to have consequences for. They're, you know, they're not going to like what happens if they keep doing the thing that they're doing. And eventually, like, you know, but they keep arguing, so I'm just like, okay, fine. If that's, I mean, if, if that's what you want, I mean, it's definitely going to happen, but okay, if that's what you want, go ahead and do it. And I do that. Uh, I don't do that with my littlest kids because they'd be like, what? Really? I, I can do it? Um, with with the older kids, it has that has that um, capability of making them a little, bit, a little bit more thoughtful. You know, it prompts a little bit more thoughtfulness on the matter. Like, okay, if you, I'm saying I can do it, but should I really do it? Because he seems pretty sure that that's going to happen. And, and so 
I think that's the idea. Let the evildoer still do evil. He's coming, bringing his recompense with him to repay you for that evil. But go ahead. Right? In addition, the point is to demonstrate that the prophecy that John is speaking is being fulfilled. Like there is evil now, and there will always be evil in this world until Jesus returns. Okay. Uh, And yet the righteousness offered in Christ continues to be made known to the world. So God's revelation is reliable. Human intuition is not. Jesus is coming soon, but so is judgment. And now we see, thirdly, believers are blessed. Unbelievers are warned and invited. Believers are blessed. Unbelievers are warned and invited. So um, we've seen this kind of invitation language before in Revelation. If you remember two weeks ago, in our outline through 21 and into 22, we saw a picture, a description, and an invitation. And I think John, you know, in his gospel account, in his epistles, and, and even here in Revelation, uses a lot of invitation kind of imagery. And the same invitation to drink freely of the water of life without price that he said already is now repeated here again. But first, he said, okay, so those who do that will be blessed. Believers, we see that believers are blessed. Look at verses 7 and 14. So set your eyes, chapter 22, verses 7 and 14. There are seven blessings throughout Revelation. So apocalyptic, right? This is how apocalyptic, very intentional. Seven beatitudes, the final beatitudes of Jesus, right? Seven blessings throughout Revelation. And here are the last two. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And, 14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Those being blessed here, you need to understand, are genuine believers. They're genuine believers. Those who put their faith in Christ. Right? Um, Remember that the words of the prophecy of this book They're inextricably bound up with the gospel. That's what John's getting at this whole time. We see throughout Revelation symbols of Christ coming to do for his people what we could never do for ourselves so that when he comes in chapter 19 before the battle in which he stomps out the enemies that want to prevent his return, before the battle starts, he has blood on his robe. It can't just be because of the winepress of God's wrath because the battle hasn't begun. Whose blood is it? It's his. He died for us that we might have life. It's his blood for us on our behalf, right? So there's all these images, all these symbols of what Christ has done for us. So to receive that message is to be blessed. It's to have your robes washed, to have the right to the tree of life, right? On the other hand, unbelievers are warned. Look at how the verse continues. Verse 15, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel. So here we see it again. Jesus following a statement of judgment with what? A statement of his authority, right? Like, it's almost like he knows. There are going to be people uh, who don't like what they're about to read about judgment. I need to make sure they understand. Um, they They have no way to wiggle around this. This is what I'm saying. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. So when the churches receive this, it's not up to them to, you know, let's not preach about the the lake of fire, let's not preach about judgment because, like, uh, people don't like that. No, he gave us all of this for the churches, and then he says, I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, right? Not you. So we're at the point in Revelation 
where my hope is that you can finish some of my sentences, preferably without rolling your eyes, but I'll take what I can get. So um, John's purpose throughout this book is to draw all these black and white contrasts, right? Everyone has a mark. You're either sealed with God's mark or you have the beast's mark, right? Everyone faces wrath. You either face Antichrist's wrath now in this world or you face God's wrath in the end. Everyone is a citizen. You're either a citizen of Babylon or the New Jerusalem. Everyone participates in a final dinner. You're either invited as the main course to the great supper of God at which the birds of the air will feast on your flesh, or you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb at which you're seated with Christ. You either drink from the water of life or the lake of fire. All of this black and white imagery, and I could go on, and you know I could, right? Um, I'll spare you. Uh, all of this is black and white imagery, no writing the fence, and it's all for the purpose of, this is why, this is why. It's warning people who don't trust in Christ, who are trusting in themselves, who are trusting in other things, and inviting them to something better, you know. He's not just warning them and saying, you know, out of fear you should not do that, although I think certainly there's, there's something to that. There's more to it. There's also invitation, as we'll see in a minute, right? Like, they, they will find themselves cast out. Jesus himself testifies to this reality for the church so that everyone can hear. Okay? And that's exactly why we read this final warning in the book. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of the book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, some might read this and think, that seems pretty unfair. And you know what? I understand. Like, is John really saying, like, I'm going to write this super mysterious book clad with apocalyptic visions and images where there are, like, beasts emerging out of the sea with women riding on their back and all these you know, things? And, and uh, but you better not get any of this wrong, man. You know, the pressure's on at that point. That's not the case. It doesn't mean that if there's confusing parts of Revelation and you're not sure what it means, that, like, God's going to add to you the plagues of this book. Right, okay. Um, it doesn't mean that if you get your view on the millennial kingdom wrong, God will add to you the plagues of this book. Lucky for you post-mills and on-mills out there, right? Um, good, new, good news for you guys. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it doesn't mean that if you see something in Revelation as being entirely future, but actually we come to find out in the end that it was already fulfilled in Christ, that there's, you're going to ultimate judgment, right? It doesn't mean that. The gospel is not... What Jesus did on the cross for your sins plus a right reading of various confusing things in the book of Revelation. Like, it's not like, it's like, okay, the requirements for Christian faith. Throw yourself on Christ's mercy and rightly tell me about who that beast was, right? Like, um, that just can't be what John means here. Thankfully. Take a deep breath. What he means instead. What he means instead, though, it's, it's serious. What he means instead is a final warning related to believing the gospel. It is. It's for all of us to hear and to heed. If you hear the words of this book and turn and repent and believe and trust in Christ over the world, right? if you hear the words of this book to do that, to telling you to turn and repent, to believe and trust in Christ, to believe, trust in his authority over the world's authority, 
but then you don't, you'll experience judgment. Like, if, if you decide to take the inconvenient bits out, and I think, broadly speaking, we can apply this beyond revelation to all of Scripture. All of God's Word, any time. Yeah. So, so with all of the Bible, what we have is God's revelation to us. It bears authority because it's from Him. Right. So, if at any point, what we're doing is taking, doing the Thomas Jefferson thing and taking our pen knife and just, I don't, I don't like that part. He removed the lake of fire. I don't like from Revelation, right? I don't like the lake of fire stuff in Revelation. I don't like this, the, the part of the gospel that says I need Jesus in any kind of way because I'm a sinner. Yeah, I don't like that. It doesn't make me feel very good. I'm going to take these things out. When we remove that, we remove the gospel, you know? And to decide for yourself what the gospel is and what the gospel is not based on, again, your own human intuition, which is untrustworthy, Right? You'll experience judgment in the end. But before John warns you here, before he gets to the warning, just taking a step back to verse 17, he invites you. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Guys, in the context of Revelation chapter 22, this is talking about non-believers. It's, it's, it's directed at non-believers. How do I know? The Spirit and the bride together testify to this. The Spirit and the bride together say, come. Who are they talking to? Those who are apart from Christ. This is why we planted a church together. We desire to have evangelistic conversations with those who don't know Christ. Gospel conversations with those who don't know Christ that they might hear and believe. We desire to, along with the Spirit, as the bride, say to the surrounding world, come. Come. Note the requirement for salvation according to Revelation 22. It is simply recognize the basis of your neediness. Recognize your need for a Savior and then turn to Him. Come to Him. It doesn't say come to a, you know, come to a, a five-fold plan that you have to accomplish now. Come to a certain set of rules and regulations. No, it's come to a person who bled and died that you don't have to. So you don't have to, right? Come. Why come? Because of your neediness, right? Remember Jesus in his, so, so this is kind of a, It's a continuation of his Beatitudes, right? Because here we see the final Beatitudes of Christ. But when you go back to the first Beatitudes of Christ in Matthew chapter 5, what does he say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those, in other words, who are just so spiritually bankrupt that they realize their need and they come, right? What do they do? They throw themselves on the mercies of Christ. Blessed are those who then mourn, right? They cry out to God to save them because they know they can't. They've recognized their poverty in spirit. So they throw themselves on the mercies of Christ. They, they cry out, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. There's neediness caught up in this. And the one who, who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. You're thirsty. Recognize your thirst. Recognize your need. And throw yourself on the mercies of Christ without price. You don't have to do anything. That's just put your hands down. Put, put, put the stuff that you're holding that you're trying to save yourself with down and come, come to Christ with empty hands. Revelation urges two things. And this is the central theme of the book. It urges Christians to remain faithful to the end. 
It urges non-believers to repentance. That's the central theme driving all of these contrasts. It's the reason for all of the black and white language. It's, it's the basis for all of what's been told to us. Christ is coming again, right? Believers must remain faithful to him until he comes. Believers must remain faithful to Christ to the very end. Even in a world that would try to um, tell you that it's foolishness in about a thousand different ways. Try to humiliate you for what the Bible, what, what they, they claim the Bible says and for what the Bible says. For what the Bible says. Try to humiliate you. In the midst of those things, in the midst of a world that stands opposed to you, believers must remain faithful to Christ to the very end and non-believers must turn to Christ before it's too late. He's delaying his coming that you might know and believe and trust in him. So non-believers call is to trust. And the means to both of these realities is found in the last two verses. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Verse 21. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. We can, we can persevere in our faith even in the midst of great hardship and difficulty because the grace of Jesus is with us. We can persevere in light of the cross where though we had made ourselves enemies of God, we were earth dwellers, angry with God, though we rebelled against him and that rebellion deserved death, he entered into human history in the person of Jesus to take that death upon himself that we might have life that begins now and goes on forever. Not because of anything we've done, but out of sheer grace for the sinner. And that continues to be the great hope of our hearts. That continues to be the great source of life-changing joy. It changes our desires. It makes us say, you know what? Like, I come to passages in Scripture that I don't understand. I come to passages in Scripture where it's hard to believe. But I trust God and His authority more than my own. I desire Him more than me. My heart, human heart, inclinations of my heart, unreliable. God, always reliable, right? And that is held out as an invitation for those who don't believe. Uh, You can't save yourself. Revelation is a picture of what it looks like throughout this book to attempt to save yourself. It's not pretty, right? Go back and listen to the prior messages. It's not pretty. It's not for your good. When we try to be our own Lord and Savior, we inflict damage on ourselves We inflict damage on others. We attempt to bear the weight that we were never intended to bear. The things that we serve and worship actually eat us alive. They actually destroy us. So it crushes us. It destroys us. And it'll continue to crush you for all eternity. But but Jesus was crushed at the cross so that now by sheer grace, through faith in him, you can throw yourself on his mercies and find life. He's crushed so that you don't have to be. And this is what we proclaim to one another at the table each week. We come forward together to encourage our hearts with this reality. Now at the end of Revelation, made even more full and complete.